Beyond the Wrench with Jay Ganinen from Wrenchway. On this week's episode of Beyond the Wrench, I get to welcome my friend Jeff Berman from ATI. Jeff, how are you doing today? I am fantastic, Jay. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, this is going to be a fun one. Anybody that's ever talked to Jeff or listened to Jeff, I've been in presentations that Jeff has given at Super Conference. It's always a lot of fun, and I don't want to build you up too much because I don't want to disappoint the crowd here, but... I think this will be yeah, a fun I'm conversation. I'm already disappointed. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> so Automotive Training Institute, AT, is where Jeff works. And you guys have a pretty big impact on shops throughout the country. And I, I, I'm a huge fan of what you guys do. But I want to learn more about you. How did you get into this business? Oh, God. You want to know that? <laughs> We're going way back. We're going way, way back. Well, that's quite a question there, Jay. Um, I wasn't expecting that. Okay, so the beginning. My grandfather started in 1949 with a flying A gas station. Unless your listeners are 60 plus, they probably don't know what the hell I just said when I said flying gas station. So anybody younger than 60, look it up. It was, you know, your standard, you know, Crown or Exxon or whatever kind of gas station back then. And he... You know, he just grew over the years, ended up with a towing company and in a garage that was seven bays by the time he retired. And his sons took over the business. And when I was, I don't know, eight years old, I used to work for grandpa. And grandpa used to, you know, have me go out and get, you know, put gasoline in a, in a bucket and soak a rag in it and wipe off hoses and scrape, you know, inches of of ground in oil off the ground and clean the bathrooms. And I, I made a wonderful dollar a day over the summer. I'll never forget that. That was my summer. That was my mother's way of getting rid of me, I think. And he'd buy me lunch and he'd give me a dollar a day. That was my salary. And all I wanted to do was play with cars. And all he wanted me to do was clean. (laughs) (laughs) That, that was my start. And then when he retired, my uncles took over in the, I guess it was, mid eighties when I joined and my uncle recruited me in, you know, he wanted to grow. He wanted family to do it. I was skeptical. I did it anyway and fell in love. I mean, that's really what happened. And over the 16 years I was with them, I learned all that I knew at the time about automotive and growth. We went from a, uh, we had 11, I believe, tow trucks on the road at the time. We were towing for the city police department. We had a seven bay garage that we expanded into a larger, I don't know, we added, I don't know, seven or eight bays on that. And we we moved into another facility ultimately in 2000. But over that time, we grew and opened a body shop and all kinds of stuff. So the company grew a ton over that 16 years. I left in 20, uh, 2003, and that's when I joined ATI. And that was because the, the truth is, is the, really this is where the story gets interesting. I was having a hard time with the two of them in that that last five years or so I worked for them in that they were smart enough to know their business needed to change and grow. And they sent me off to these classes in California, similar to what our program is, only it was for the body business. And I'd come back with all these ideas and all these things that needed to change. And they'd look at me and say, yeah, that won't work here. Yeah, I can't do that. And we're not doing that. And over time, 
I started to see the business very differently. And I saw a future that was eroding while they were saying to me over and over again, this will be yours one day. And I'm thinking to myself, who wants this crap? Right. <laughs> and so without really being able to make any change over that five-year period of time, we started to really grow apart. And that's when we all agreed it was time for me to move on. And when I found ATI, what I found was, I didn't realize it at the time, but I found a place where I could make the changes that I wanted to make with other shops that I couldn't do in the shop that I was in. And so being going on 19 years here, I, I really found that niche. And I, I've, I've been the happiest I've ever been. This has just been an amazing experience. You're talking to other shop owners and helping them. It's been awesome. Yeah, and I think what's really cool is that you're able to have an impact on a lot of people now, right? Not that you didn't in one shop, but the fact that you're able to truly impact the businesses of people. I know speaking about ATI in my own personal experience, my dad is a member of ATI and has had a profound impact on on his business and to the point to where at one point you know probably a year before he signed up with ATI he was ready to hand the keys to somebody and say hey here you go I don't you don't pay me don't do anything I just want out of the business and and from there getting a coach and I, I'll never forget they were trying to justify the price of signing up for ATI and the conversation that we had and I had told him, I said, Dad, if they force you to look at your numbers once a week, it will be worth the price <laughs> of paying for ATI. But it, it went so much further than that. And there was so much of the guidance and the coaching that I think is so underrated in being able to, to make the business be something that he enjoyed being around again, right? And similar to when he first started the business and, you know, was working – 16 hour days and and trying to just keep the bills paid and and you know being annoyed when the the phone rang but still loving the business to where almost fell out of love with the business and then I think that association with ATI really kind of made him fall back in love with the business and showed him that there was a different way of doing it that could make his life exponentially better. It's funny you say that because that's really a good segue into our topic here today which is one thing I've noticed, and it didn't take me long, but I, once I did notice it, it really stuck with me because it really hasn't changed, is that the hiring culture here at ATI is extremely tight. And what I mean by that is they would never hire someone that isn't a cultural fit. So when, when you are assigned a coach, you can rest assured that the person who is coaching you cares about your business. This isn't a, you know, all right, he's got some skills. Looks like it'll be fine. Let's, let's check it out and see how it goes. I mean, the hiring process here is really, really tough. And you know, it's gotten tougher over the years. I, I got lucky because the truth is, today, I probably couldn't get hired here. Seriously. I mean, it, it's gotten that tough. So, you know, when, when you tell me about your experience with your dad, that doesn't surprise me at all because this is a group of people that really want to see you guys grow. I mean, we are passionate about this business. We want to see the industry get better. You know, we're we're doing everything we can to help contribute to that in some way. And, and nothing makes me happier than to get a phone call or get an email or something. You know, wow, what you just did changed my life, or that that was amazing. Or you know, I've I've worked I've wor I work differently with my spouse and my kids now because of some of the leadership lessons that I've learned in your classes and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that, that's what brings me back every day. 
It, it isn't the paycheck. It's that. And that's really where I think a lot of people make hiring mistakes is because they get focused in on, well, this person can fix cars. Let's, you know, they cross their fingers and they say, I hope it'll work out, you know, because they really didn't look at anything other than that. And, you know, I, I would encourage your listeners to really think about that. Am I hiring because I found someone that really fits into my company and my culture or am I hiring somebody because I'm desperate? And I, that is such a key point when it comes to hiring is that piece right there, right? Is making sure they're a fit. And so often, and I'm curious as to if you see the same thing, but when, when a shop hires somebody, they, in a lot of cases, solely focus on their technical ability. They don't focus on any of the other attributes that that person brings to the shop and we've seen a lot of shops kind of put themselves in, in a weird spot because they bring somebody in that doesn't fit what the culture is. And and I think a lot of times, especially in smaller independents, maybe they, they, they think that culture is a buzzword, right? Like, ah, those those people talk about culture. I, I just need people to come in and turn wrenches and, and put out work, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, it's like... Yeah, I've heard all that stuff. That sounds like it might work, but we got cars to fix. I ain't got time for that. that that's kind of how that, that thought process goes for most people. But and you just explained perfectly how you can change your culture and how you can really get that great culture. And it's be, it's by becoming intentional about hiring. I think where shops go wrong in a lot of scenarios is that they're so reactive. They, they are more thinking, hey, I just have all of this work to get out. I need to hire somebody that can fog a mirror so that we can get stuff out. And then they wonder why they struggle so much on the people side of things and how it's it's tougher to manage people when you don't have good people, right? And and maybe they don't fit what you do and they don't have, you know, how many times have you heard a shop say, oh, these young people, they're just lazy. They don't have any work ethic. And you're like, well, maybe you just hired the wrong young person, right? Agreed. Yeah, and because we, we've had it in our business where we hire a lot of young people, especially in maybe sales or marketing type of positions, and they work their tails off. But we didn't hire the first person that came in the door. We were very intentional, similar to what you're talking about with ATI, where you have an idea of what you're looking for. And I was fortunate enough to, to sit through your class. And one of the things that I thought was was cool about you was talking about identifying what that person looks like. What is the, what is the kind of person you want to bring in, right? And most shops, I would say, just have no idea. They, they, they don't know that type of person or the personality that they're looking to bring on. And, and I'm curious as to the impact that either that good hire or even maybe let me reverse that question. Knowing what you want in a person, how important is that when you start to go out and try to find talent for your shop? Well, Jay, I I would almost say, I don't know that anybody really thinks about what they want. You know, when you say knowing what they want, I don't know that they know what they want. I think that's the first problem, right? They think they know because they think they need someone with skills that can fix cars or someone with skills that can write service or use their software or write an estimate or answer the phone, whatever it might be. And while that's true, those skills are important. That's not really what they should be looking for. What they should be looking for is what I refer to as the head, the heart, and the hands, right? Someone who's intelligent enough 
someone who has the desire to be there, wanting to learn and grow. They're adaptable and they're not stuck in their own ways. And then someone who's capable, head, heart, and hands. So if, if we have those three things, the one thing that we can teach them is the skills. But we go the other way around. We hire skills and then wonder why things don't work out because we can't teach those other things. And and anybody listening that's ever hired someone that's, let's say, no no skills at all, whatever position they put them in, right? They, they came in here green and growing, right? They want to take them from zero to hero, however you want to look at it, right? And they come in at zero. If it worked out, and it's very likely it did because without an inner – without – skills interview, because that skill doesn't exist, the only thing to talk about is really the cultural side of it, the head, the heart, the hands. So if they've made a good hire that way, which it's likely they did, everyone listening that's done that is going to say, yep, that worked out. Best salesperson ever had, right? Because that's usually the case. Now, if they're listening and saying, no, it didn't work out, their brain probably went to, oh, yeah, got to have experience. But in reality, if they really take a minute and think, what was missing? Head, heart, or hands? Because I guarantee you, at least one of those th- three things we're missing. Skills is the least important part of our hire. That's where we make a mistake. I absolutely love what you just said there. And I think that's s- such an important piece for those of you that are trying to hire an experienced tech right now too, right? Is is you probably interview differently with a, with a fresh young person than you do a veteran technician. And if you take the 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 skill piece out of it and you're trying to figure out who that person is you're going to get a lot further because you're finding the person that's going to fit in with you that's going to like your management style i you know i i think it's crazy how different all these shops are i'm sure you you get to see it every day one shop is dramatically different than all of the other shops and being able to see the uniqueness between all of these different shops yet I think a lot of shops really get stuck in that trap where they, you know, they kind of think that everybody's the same. I, I know I, I've talked about this in a lot of content that we do that we're guilty of, uh, as an industry of putting all technicians into one bucket and saying, oh, you know what, they all, they all like this one thing. They all like to hunt or they all like it. But my experience with techs, you're starting to see more techs that like gaming. You start to see techs that like different things than what maybe the tra- traditional mechanic liked. They have interests that are different and and different personalities. And just being able to identify that could dramatically impact your business. I mean, that core element is so important. It's actually worse today than it's ever been. And I'll tell you why. Now, we've always had genera- generational gaps, right? You know, this generation had a problem with that generation, right? Remember, you know, I, I hear it all the time about, oh, those millennials, right? And they say all kinds of things about how they have no work ethic and they're lazy. And, and the truth is, it's not true. They're fantastic humans. So if you're a millennial listening, I don't subscribe to that, all right? <laughs> but I understand why the older folks do, right? And it, it's if, if you think about what's happened over a generation, those same older folks when they were kids, right? They were watching television and the parents were saying, it's going to rot your brain. Well, now the younger kids have it in their phones and they're all over the place with it. And, and what are we, what are the older people saying? It's going to rot your brains. I mean, it's no different. Now you could say it's different because it's 24 seven and all that, but that's just our brains trying to justify it. it. It really isn't that much different. What's different is, is that the, the values 
that a baby boomer in this case, or even a Gen Xer, hold dear are very different than the values that a millennial or a Gen Z would hold dear, right? It's just different. So it's not that one's bad, one's better, one's worse, you know, one's great. No, it's not. It's just different. And if we don't embrace that difference and stop feeling like, well, they got to conform to me because I own the place. The truth is they don't need your job. I mean, if you think about it, there's way more jobs out there than there are people to fill them. They don't need your job. The, the mindset needs to change with the employers. They need to stop saying, you know, you should be lucky to work here. They should start thinking, I should feel lucky you want to be here. And we really have to change that that egocentric mindset into more of an open, you know, collaborative, safe place to work as opposed to one that's the opposite of that. And I know 20, 30 years ago, that's how it was. And the real unfortunate thing is, is that most of the people that I'm talking about that tend to lead from more of a, you know, power position, most of the time don't like that. But that's what they grew up with. And even though they know there's probably a better way and it's wrong, they don't know what else to do. So they get stuck in these patterns. And it isn't until they start to explore other ways and really open their minds to some of the stuff that I'm sharing right now is, is when they start to evolve. And it can and does happen. I see it all the time. And when they do, that's when the world opens up. That's when these better people start to want to work at places like this because we don't allow the ones that don't fit to be around. We would never do that to the rest of our people. It just, it, it just doesn't happen anymore. We think differently. So that's, to me, the biggest disconnect. It's the generational thing where we, we, we keep thinking we're smarter, we're better, we know better, instead of going, wait a minute, they know better. It, it, it's, it's a whole different way of looking at it. And it's, I think it leans into that servant mentality as a leader that a lot of shops need to get on board with, right? I still see a large number of shops that have that you're lucky to work here type of mentality, and it hurts them so much because from a technician or a service writer's point of view, or even a service manager's point of view, it comes off as almost arrogant, right? And I think it creates some type of internal friction, even for your teams that you currently have, right? The people that are in your shop right now, when you lead that way, and maybe you, you're talking down to that individual, and maybe you're not even intentionally talking down to them, but you are talking down to them, I think it it almost it creates that grudge. It creates you're not creating a team type of environment or a family type of environment. You're creating that you're working for me, you better listen to me type of mentality. And I think that's what opens people up to want to look for something different, right? I, I think that's the thing, you know, we, this as we record this, we're in the month of June and our topic of the month with Wrenchway is great managers. And we just did a roundtable last week where we talked about, you know, it, it's a common phrase that people don't leave their jobs, they leave their managers. And I think our industries, yeah, I think our industries as bad as anybody. Of the reason that somebody leaves is the manager, 70%. Think about that. And it's worse than that because most managers are ineffective at their job. And, and the truth is what we're talking about, we say automotive, it's really not automotive. I don't care what business it is. All of this that we're talking about, it's, it's 
pervasive across just about any small to mid-sized business. This this is just how it is. So why is that? It's because, and forgive me if anyone listening, you know, relates to this. I mean, I don't I don't want to sound like I'm um, being a you know bad guy here, but I'm trying to keep my language clean. But but, but I. I I want to make sure that we're clear on this because I can't help you if you don't first realize what's wrong. And the bottom line is, is that in this country, we promote people to a level of incompetence. And what we end up doing is we take someone who's relatively good or maybe great at what they're currently doing and saying, oh, I need someone over here. Let me promote them. And then we move them under, into a position where they're going to fail. And it doesn't mean that they, they couldn't be successful. But we take them and put them there. It's a complete – you take a tech and make them a service writer. It's a completely different position. That, you know, the techs typically – it's not that they don't you know, like people. They just prefer not to be around them typically, right? And so then you take someone who's not a people person and you put them in a people position. We wonder why they'll fail because we're still focused completely on that skill set. And the truth is the skills is going to actually cause them not to sell. That's a whole different discussion. But my point I'm getting at is this. We promote people to a level of incompetence. And then we don't provide them training, the support, the tools, you know, the, the, the resources. We just say, oh, you're good at this. You must be good at that. And we let them go. So managers are very ineffective at their job typically. And as a result, the relationship that they have with the people under them is typically not good. I hope everybody can see that and take a moment and really reflect because it really does fall on ownership. How do you uh, – give me an idea of the amount of shop owners on the independent side came from a technician type of role like in, oh, with the shops that you deal with. Is it 90%? Is it? I wouldn't say it's 90%, but it's pretty big. It's probably 70 or better. Yeah, and – when they focus on, you know, they're used to working on cars and and being able to fix that one thing that's in front of them. But when you go into that management or leadership type of role, now you're 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 talking to or managing or leading a bunch of different people, different personalities. And I'm curious as to how somebody that might not like being around people that much is able to adapt to that. Is that something that sticks with them forever? Or is it something where they say, Hey, you know what? I know I stink at this. I need to embrace this a little bit more. I can go get training. Is it something that's trainable to get into that leadership position? Well, you know, that's an interesting question, Jay. We, we do a lot of personality testing here, either through the, what we call the bird, the dove eagle test, or through a uh, product called Wonderlick. There's a couple others too, but those are the primary ones that we use. And you can very easily see what their personality is at the time of that testing. And very often after being in this program for four, five, six, eight, 10, 12, 15 years, some of them been here for as long as I ever longer. And, you know, as they test every five years or so, you can see that needle start to move. I mean, yeah. And, but but it they have to have a willingness to change. You know, you, you can't join a program like ours and say, oh, yeah, yeah I'm not doing that. That's not going to work. And there's a small percentage of people that do. And it always baffles me that they would spend all this money to say, no, I'm not doing that. I just don't understand that. But 
I get why they want to dig in because their belief system is that it won't work rather than have a belief system of, okay, I'm hearing something different. Let me see what I can do about that. One of the biggest challenges I face with a business owner, and I, I tell them this early on in my coaching experience with them, I say, you're not allowed to say I can't. There's nothing that I'm going to bring up that we're going to discuss that I'm going to ask you to change, that you're not allowed to say I can't. Because I can't means you've made a decision not to do it. And it's not true. It's a lie. There's nothing I tell you to do you can't do. But there are many things that I tell you to do that you won't do. So if we can come to that conclusion and agree that, yes, there's a difference between I can't and I won't, and there's nothing I'll bring you that you can't do, only things that you won't do. If you can bring the I won't to me, I'm willing to debate that. But the reality is, is that what should happen is you should take away both of those and evolve to a new idea, which is a question instead of a statement, which is how can I? So when we take on the 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 curiosity and instead of saying, oh, it's different here. You don't understand my customers. You don't understand how tough this neighborhood is. Oh, we're not a high metropolitan area like you. Oh, it's different. All I've heard it all. The weather, the transient, the military, the college. I've heard it all. Okay. And the reality is it's still closed minded and not willing to make a change because we believe all the negative things. Well, this will happen. This will happen. And it's all about confrontation. We, we just don't like as humans to put ourselves in a position to fail when in reality we should be wanting to fail because it's the failure that helps us find the solution. So when we say, how can I, you know, coach, I'm not really sure that's going to work here. Can you explain to me how we can do this, how I can wrap my head around this? And we can debate that. You can go out and try a few things, but if you approach it with the understanding it's going to fail, guess what? It's going to fail. And that's what I run into the most. And that's no different with hiring. It doesn't matter what it is. That's what I, I, I can't interview all the time. There's no job available. Okay, but they can leave you at any time. Why would you not be prepared for that? Why wouldn't you interview like as much as you possibly can? Well, I can't because. Well, because what? Because you've never done it before? Because it seems unnatural? Yeah, I mean, big, that's what big business does. They interview all the time. Just because you're interviewing doesn't mean you have a position available, but we think that way. We've thought that way forever. And I'll give you another little tip here. And I, I learned this recently. I was scrolling through Facebook and I stumbled on this guy doing a video on, on a golf swing. He was talking about a slice. And I haven't golfed in years. I don't know why I fell on this, but something about it intrigued me. And I'm watching it. And he, he made this statement that blew me away. And it absolutely applies right now, which is this. He said, practice makes permanent. He was talking about a golf swing. And what he was saying is, is that the more you do the wrong thing over and over again, the harder it's going to be to undo that. So you got to practice twice as hard, if not more, the right thing to undo the wrong thing, right? So you got 20 years of doing something wrong, or maybe it was right then, but it's no longer wrong now. That practice made permanent, and that permanent is where the I can't come comes from. And that's probably the hardest thing I run into with business owners is they just get stuck and they're not willing to try. One of the things we do at Wrenchway is help technicians find great places to work. 
If you think your shop is a top shop, we want to hear from you. Wrenchway Top Shop pages are like resumes for shops. They share all the details technicians want to know about before they apply, such as compensation ranges for all levels, photos and videos of the service area, videos of technicians and managers, and frequently asked questions on work environment, career development, and hiring process. Attract more technicians to your shop by becoming a Wrenchway Top Shop. Visit wrenchway.com to contact us and learn more. Link is in the show notes. One thing you mentioned there that I think is a really powerful tool in general is failing fast or or even understanding that it's okay to fail and how that pertains to hiring I think is so important and where a lot of times maybe a shop hires somebody, it doesn't work out, they fire them before their probationary period is is all the way through and they're like, well, that person just sucked. I always look at it and I'm like, okay, did they suck as much as you said? And if they did, that's kind of on you as the hiring manager, right? You're the one that hired them. You're the one that pulled the trigger. And so, I, you know, I think there's a lot of finger pointing, mm-hmm. but I think the finger's pointing at the wrong person, right? Agreed 100%, right? If I hired him with my fingers crossed going, I hope this works out and it doesn't work out and you don't take a minute and look back at that, something's wrong. Yeah. And there's so much power in that part where you can look back at your failures and if you track them, you're intentional about it and you're reviewing what didn't work so you know that you can apply it the next time, that failure can become a really useful tool to understand what to do differently the next time. And I I love how consistently you ask your clients to go and interview people because it sets a, it's a tough thing to do, right? It's not easy to do, but the more you do it, the more of the right practice you get. And the more you can actually learn from it and view it as a way to get better, you're going to improve your business. It can't help but not improve your business when you're doing that and failing fast and learning from it, right? Jay, I wonder how many, and you may not be able to maybe give me an exact number, but just, you know, from experience, how many people would you say that you've come in contact with through Wrenchway that is focusing you know, more on the hiring system that you're sharing, they're getting more interviews than ever, that come to an interview prepared. When I say prepared, I don't mean, you know, they've cleaned up, they, they're ready at the time the guy shows up and we have a conversation. I mean, beyond that, right? They have a set of interview questions set up. They set the interview up properly, set expectations for the interview, right? They, they spend more time listening than talking, right? You know, they've set a comfortable environment. I mean, how many of them show up prepared in your opinion? I would say the 80-20 rule applies there. I think that I would say roughly 10 to 15% of all people, all shops actually show up prepared. And when I say prepared, I think there's a variety of different levels of preparedness but the, to the extent that you're talking about where you're asking intentional questions, you're listening for the answer and trying to really, really, I don't know, slice up what their answers are and being able to truly understand it. I, it might be less than that, to be honest. Yeah, they got an, they got an application or a resume beforehand. They call the references. They maybe even did some research on the jobs they had beforehand. They had some knowledge before that person walked in the door. I'd be willing to bet it's a very, very, very low percent of people that actually do that. And then they wonder why it doesn't work out once they hire them. 
they they have a 15 minute interview. They fall in love with the person because they're not the ones that, you know, the person doesn't say anything. They, they, the, the interviewer doesn't shut up typically. Right. So, you know, yeah, can you fix cars? Yeah, I'm great at cars. Okay, great. And, you know, they go, okay, I hope it works. They hire them right there. You know, 30, 40% of the time, they probably don't even show, but when they do show up, you know, what's the likelihood a week later, they're going, yep, they're exactly what they said they were. Usually they're going to say, yep, that guy's not performing the way he's supposed to. He, he told me he was a, you know, a fix anything kind of guy. He's barely a C-tech in my opinion, right? What do I do? I'm paying him a tech salary. And then we're stuck into that same crap that we're in before. And we keep blaming them. The whole thing's on us. The whole damn thing is on us. I will say the last job I had prior to starting Wrenchway was at an executive level at a dealership. And the owner at the time, it's still the owner, I went into that interview and literally the entire time he was trying to sell to me. Like it, it, you, you could tell, like I, I didn't, I think I talked maybe I, I probably said two sentences the entire time. And at the end, he's like, you're hired. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that was the easiest interview I've ever done. But I, I, I totally get where you're coming from. And I think it's really hard from a shop standpoint not to do that because in a lot of cases, you are desperate to get help in the door. And it's really hard not to put on your sales hat and say, hey, you got to come work for us. We've got an awesome place. But that's before you even know if they're they're a good fit. You're you're kind of jumping a step there, and it's because you're you're maybe either desperate or you're oh, they're really not, just they're not trying. maybe desperate. Yeah, they are desperate. They are desperate. Yeah, <laughs> but it's so true in that I, even from my own standpoint, I think looking back at interviews that I've done, and if I get a feeling or a sense that I really like somebody, I do not intentionally, but flip the switch to going to sale mode and trying to sell them on why our company is great, even today at Wrenchway, right? And I think that's an error that a lot of managers make where they, they're they not truly diving into understand who that person is, but more so, hey, this person's pedigree along with their personality are great. I need to sell them on why this is a great place to work. It's the 90-10 rule, right? We talk 90%, listen 10 we need to flip it. We need to listen 90% talk 10. That's where we screw it up. And I'll tell you a quick little story here, if you want to call it that, about where I give you an analogy about maybe the listeners can really relate to this to understand why. So when you have a scenario where you talk, what you may or may not realize is the more you talk, the more you like the person you're talking to. So what happens is, you know, a lot of times I hear, you know, like, well, you know, let's say they hired a salesperson. Well, I didn't, you hired someone. That's great. I, I don't remember seeing that personality test. Oh, yeah, yeah. This one's going to work out just fine. I, I, well, what makes you say that? I can just tell, right? This is a gut moment, right? And the reality is, is that this is the one place where I can say for most shop owners, business owners, when they don't know how to interview, which is most of them, their gut is fooling them. Their gut doesn't have enough information to be honest with them. And here's why. So think about this. You're in a social setting. Let's say you were invited to a party and you knew the host or the hostess of the party, but 
they had a whole bunch of friends that you didn't know that were there, right? Maybe they're business associates. And you show up to this party, pretty much the only person you know is the one that owns the place, right? The house, right? You ever been in a situation like that? Oh, yeah. All right. Now, for some people, whatever, no big deal. For others, that's at least a little uncomfortable. I think most people would at least be a little bit uncomfortable there, right? So the 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 host comes over, sees, hey, Jay, how you doing? Good to see you. Hey, man, look, let me introduce you to my friend over here. He's also a car guy, right? Because he can't spend any time with you. He's got to socialize. He's got a, he's got a job to do. So he brings you over to me and he says, hey, Jeff, meet Jay. Jay's a car guy. You're a car guy. Hey, talk car guy. See you later, right? And off he goes. You ever been in a situation like that? 100%. Okay, so here's what happens. One of two things, either you and I are going to trade battle stories and eventually get bored with each other and might go something like this. Hey, Jay, I understand your car guy. Yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, I had a GTO. Really? Well, I had a Super B. Well, mine was blue. Well, mine was yellow. Well, mine was fast. Well, mine was faster. And we're just literally me, 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 me. Right. And at some point, we're both going to look at each other and go, "Okay, now what? Got a PC later. Right. (laughs) All right. That's one way. Or. One of those people is going to show some interest in the other. So, for example, you know, I'll say, well, Jay, man, wow, car guy, what's that look like? When when did you get interested in cars? And you're going to say, well, when I was a kid, you might you might hear a story similar to what I just said when we started this podcast. Right. And so as you hear more, you ask more questions. Wow, that was great. You work with your family. Yeah. What was that like? Right. And then just more and more and more. So what's happening is. I'm showing interest in you by asking you questions. You are then responding to that. And you think to yourself, man, that Jeff guy's a pretty good guy, right? And in the meantime, I'm learning a tremendous amount about you. And I should be listening. And if I'm asking good follow-up questions, you'll know that. So if you've ever been in that scenario, you, you understand exactly what I'm saying, that you walk away feeling pretty good because the other person showed an interest. Well, it's the same thing in an interview. If you spend all your time running your mouth, you're going to love whoever it is you're talking to. So your gut is completely fooled. And the worst part is the person on the other end is their head spinning like, what the hell was that all about? Right. You learn nothing. I mean, nothing about them because you went, well, we started 1949 flying a and we're doing all that stuff. And he was like, "Okay, whatever. Yeah. You want to ask me some questions? Right. Right. And so they leave baffled and you're in love. Well, that's why the you can't go by your gut because we're just doing crappy interviews. We're not prepared and we don't ask any of the right questions. Thank you, Diesel Laptops, for being a sponsor of Beyond the Wrench. Founded in 2015, Diesel Laptops originally set out to help clients with their diagnostic tool needs. Since then, they have expanded into a full-service shop efficiency solution company, offering diagnostic tools, diesel technician training, repair information, parts lookup tools, and more. If diesel laptops would be a solution you would like to add to your shop, check out diesellaptops.com to learn more. How do you, in an interview, and I was find this fascinating with the different personalities of the people that are actually doing the interview. Some people like to make it awkward. Some people like to ask questions that are more maybe philosophical in trying to get an answer back. And I think we've all seen some interview questions where you're like, 
I have no idea what the, the point of that question is, but the, the interviewer has some intention behind it. And I, I think that can make it uncomfortable. But then I've heard the other side, which is probably more like me, where it's more I'm trying to make them feel comfortable. I'm trying to understand who they truly are and let them show off their personality a little bit. Is there any advice that you would have in terms of a good or bad style, or is it kind of working toward what your strengths are as a person when you're interviewing somebody? Because I almost, when I get an interview, I'm almost rooting for that person, right or not, right? Like I'm, I'm, I want them to answer well, and I'm trying not to put them in an awkward position. But at times, I probably go too far that way, right? And I think. I think that's a flaw in my interviewing style, but curious as to how personality plays into how you interview. So my, there's a lot of different ways we can go with this. Let, let me start by saying this. Anybody listening that's interested in doing better, my, my tip would be this. Go online, go to Google, and search out behavioral interview. Find behavioral interview questions. And that's really what we want. We want to ask them questions that gets them thinking. Now, a lot of times we ask questions that just simply give a yes or no. Well, or, or a one-word answer. How long you been in the auto industry? 25 years. How long you been working on cars? 18 years, right? Okay. Do you like working on cars? Yes. Right? I mean, there's no real information being gathered here, right? But when we ask a question like, you know, what got you into the industry? What is it that gets you excited when you come to work every day, right? You know, that's a different kind of question because now I got to respond with a lot more of an answer. I got to put some thought into that answer as opposed to giving you yes or no. So that's a general difference between what we might be doing now and what a behavioral interview might look like. I'll give you another quick example. And this is a, a question similar to what you're talking about, right? Those were obvious because it's about me and my skills and you know the, the car stuff. But you could ask a question like this. Did you look at my website? Yes. No. Tells you nothing. But if you change that by just adding one word to the front of that question, what did you think when you looked at my website? Right? So we went from the did you to the what did you? Right? And we just changed it just a little bit. And when you say what did you think when you looked at my website? The person's answer has to be specific. So they can't lie about it, right? So if they didn't look at it, they're going to say, oh, yeah, I really didn't look at it, right? And to me, this remember I said head, heart, and hands, intelligence. This is a chance to see if they're intelligent. Because if we go down the road of a second interview, when they come back the second time, what did you think of my website? They better have a freaking answer. <laughs> yes. You follow me? Yes. And But we don't go down those roads. We just focus on skills, right? And, it, and when we went back to being desperate, I just want to throw another little thing in there. You don't think the people you're interviewing knows you're freaking desperate, right? We should never hire on the first interview. That's the biggest mistake they make in interview. Not only do they hire on the first interview, they hire on the first 15 minutes of that interview. And everywhere they go, the people that they interview say the same thing. Yep, yep. Crappy inter, crappy interview, you're hired. Crappy inter, interview, you're hired. Crappy interview, crappy interview, you're hired, right? Well, what differentiates them? Nothing. You have no leverage. And, and if they really are listening in the interview by asking these behavioral interview questions, 
here's what they're going to start hearing. And a lot of them are hearing it anyway, even though they're not doing a good interview, which is, you know, my my supervisor lets people get away with stuff that they shouldn't. You know, the salespeople aren't really able to sell. You know, they're asking me to do things that I really don't think are ethical. Right. These are the reasons they're leaving. And if you listen carefully, you'll hear it's the relationship with whoever the manager is most of the time. But what do we hear? Pay them more, 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 pay them more. They don't want that. They're millennials. They're looking for that work-life balance. They're looking for a place to feel good, a place where, you know, there's more to it than just fixing cars. It's part of their identity. That's, That's where the difference between the baby boomer type generation and this one. They came to work to make money. That's it. They went to buy stuff, fill up their garages and have all kinds of stuff. These millennials don't care about that, but... The, the older generation keeps forcing that value on these people, which is why they only last a couple of years and move on because they're still trying to find that. And if we listen in the interview, we can hear that. That's our leverage. Start listening carefully to what it is they want. Start providing what it is they want. And then you'll find the people you want. It's not that hard. Well, and the, the power of questions and you had mentioned being prepared being able to prepare open-ended questions. I, as you're talking about this, I can't help but really correlate between sales. You know, if you're writing service, you're probably trained on how to ask open-ended questions and being able to identify a gap in, in somebody's car or like if they're trying to buy something, you're trying to identify a gap. I think it's very similar in this regard, right? And in, in being able to prepare open-ended questions and being intentional about it because the the answers that you are really looking for come with you asking a good question to start with. And I just don't know if anybody, you know, I think HR people in some of these bigger businesses that are listening are are probably much better trained and do a much better job with the asking of questions. But a lot of the, the reason you can't get the answers or the depth of the answers that you're looking for is because you're asking a terrible question to start with. Mm -hmm. Agreed. hundred percent. So, you know, we reflect back on the interview, we see some things we didn't like, and we say, okay, how can I ask this question differently? What can I do to get them talking? How can it be more open-ended? Anytime you heard an answer that was a yes or a no or a one-word answer, you should be thinking to yourself, that was a dud. I have to figure out a better way to ask it. Or if I'm going to go for the yes or no, then what's my follow-up to get into the details, right? We, we don't do that. We okay, yep, got it, got it, got it. And our interview is 20 seconds. <laughs> I mean, well, it's not quite that short, but it's it's way shorter than it should be. Well, and I think that shows the candidate that maybe you don't care, right? If you're not asking a follow-up question to, to provide more depth into what their, their answer is, it kind of shows that you're like, you're just kind of checking the box and going through the interview. You're not actually interested in that person. And I think that is really damaging to a, a potential person coming into your shop to work for you, right? Like if, if you're asking good questions, have good follow-ups to those answers. And I think a lot of the follow-up just comes in being able to be interested in what they had to say, right? You talked about listening. And if you're actively listening, you should be able to easily come up with a, with a, a, a follow-up question. I would think, but you know how you do that? You do more and more interviews because you need the practice, right? You know, so maybe, you know, maybe through your product, I get a, a bunch of resumes and I look through a few of these. I'm like, yeah, this is a waste of my time. You know what? Interview them anyway, right? Because who better to practice on than 
people you have no intention of hiring. Heck, you might find something out you didn't realize. It might end up being a good thing. But regardless of that, practice on the turds. Get better. So when the right person walks in the door, you're doing a better job, right? We're polished. And I think when we look at this and you take a step back, when you're trying to impress that candidate, and I think we talked about how frequently interviewees or interviewers, I'm sorry, go into sales mode right off the bat, and it's because they want somebody I think asking good questions and, you know, from there transitioning into a really good process, you know, following up with those folks in a timely fashion, you know, having some level of process once they go through the interview is so important. And again, I see so few shops that actually are intentional about this and and do it on purpose. They, you know, they'll look at a resume interview them in what they think is a good interview, but it probably isn't. And then, and then just say, Hey, yeah, we'll get back to you in a couple of days or a week. And then are shocked when that person doesn't answer their call when, when they call them. And it happens every day. You know, the other side of that is this, and I don't know how many people will think about this, but let's say you get an application. You look at the application and you go, there's no way you rumple it up. You throw it in the trash. Well, wait a minute, I took some time to send you that resume or that application. Don't you think I at least deserve to know you received it? Right? Some acknowledgement that it showed up and it, your eyeballs were on it, right? And so then what happens? You know, I, I got it, you know, whatever, you know, I start to form opinions. And, and the truth is, is that we look at others, the technicians, let's say in this case, the same way, you know, we offer them a job and then they ghost us and, and, and we, you know, we get all upset with them, but the truth is I believe it's our fault. We taught them that. So just as an example, for those of us listening that can relate to this, if you've ever had any kids that have applied for colleges, if any of those colleges did not respond to you and say, thank you for your application, you know, it's going through the process, we'll let you know, whatever, you know, you'd wonder yourself, what the hell did they even get it? And you would be upset. Well, how is this any different? Again, it's, it's a change in the way we look at things. If we start showing people we care, if we start showing them the respect that we should be showing them, they do that in kind. And I'll tell you something else. And it's not even, I mean, it's partially what you said about you know, showing that you care, but I really think it's about, they just don't know any better either. I mean, what we're talking about here is pervasive throughout the industry. None of the shops around, whatever community we're talking about, knows how to do an interview. In every case, they're desperate. They're all desperate. So the tech's going from interview to interview to interview, pretty much the same way with no real understanding of what sets anybody apart. If we can fix this, we can be rock stars just from having a better conversation in the interview. And maybe that person taking a moment and going, you know what? It's a little different here, right? No, many of them have, you know, what's, what's the, the text mind thought, right? My toolbox has wheels for a reason, right? Maybe they'll say to themselves, wait a minute. Maybe I found a place to actually park my toolbox for a change. There's something different here. Right. And we don't rush the process. And anyone listening is going, well, you don't understand, Jeff, they need a job. Well, if they're that desperate for a job, that's probably not someone you want to hire because the people you want to hire have good jobs, maybe not great jobs, but good jobs. It's up to you to take the time 
to nurture that situation over time. Heck, sometimes this recruiting effort takes years before it turns into something. We can't have the expectation. I had one conversation. They're going to flip. That's where we make a mistake. We got to plant seeds. We got to water them and we got to grow them. And it takes time. And whether that person ever comes to work for you or not is not really the point because they know other people and they're talking about you. If you're doing everything right, they're talking about you. That network you know, system starts to improve. And one day I am looking on Wrenchway and I see an ad and I go, well, that's that guy that such and such was mentioning and blah, blah, blah. That's where that starts to really work. But without that, and all it is is ads, 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 good luck to you. It doesn't work. not going to work. No, I... That is so spot on. I, I, I hope we clip that last comment that you just had there because I, I do think you're, you are 100% spot on. One of the things you had mentioned prior in the podcast also is, you know, taking that resume and saying, you know what, they've, they just got out of tech school and they've got six months experience. We're trying to hire an ATEC, throw the paper away. In reality, you, you know, you're going to be looking for a tech five years from now and you're going to be wishing that you would have talked to that person. And maybe you learn something about that, that especially when it comes to technicians, they're not great at writing resumes. They don't like doing resumes. And so when you fail to be proactive and go talk to that person and start a foundation of a relationship so that five years down the road, when they have the desired experience that you're looking for, you can actually go out and have a conversation with them. And maybe in the meantime, they followed you along. They saw, you know, you documenting your story and all of the things you've done to show that you're a cool shop to work at. That's what changes. And and something that we've talked a lot about internally here is shops need to stop viewing this so transactionally. They, they, They have to stop looking at it as, hey, I need a tech right now. I need to hire that person. But rather they need to focus on, creating a an employer brand so that you have followers, you have people that look at you and say, hey, that's a really cool place to work at. And so then you start to build a pipeline of people in a way healthier way than what we're doing right now for the majority of shops in the United States. And I think until we get that paradigm switched or, and, and really get shops looking at that in a different way, I think everybody's they're going to struggle with this forever. And like you said, it's just not, it's not getting easier. It's not going to get easier anytime soon. So rather than fight against this, just open up a little bit and and get better at this, because this is something that could have a huge long, I would argue the biggest long-term impact on your business is if you get this people thing, right. You're, you're going to be miles ahead of most other shops. The most important resource the shops have is their people. It's not their technicians. I'm sorry. It's not their equipment. It's not their building. It's not their customers. It's their people. And when they really understand that, that's when those changes will take place. How it's funny because I, I, I love when you say that I always say that, and we as a team say that a lot that everybody says that the, the people are, what make the business what it is. Yet on the priority list, people falls number 100th on the list, right? That They're not prioritizing it at all. And it is really damning for their business. It is not helping them. It, and it is, it's putting them further behind the eight ball. And they're going to continue to struggle with this until they change some things. Amen. 
<laughs> what do I say to that? Amen. <laughs> amen. And that amen to this entire podcast. And we're about up on our hour. I think as Jeff and I talked about prior to getting on the podcast, we could probably just do a full day or two of podcasting and talking about all the world's problems as it relates to shops. But unfortunately, we've only got an hour, so we'll definitely have to have you back on. I was just going to say, it sounds like you're going to invite me back. <laughs> we are 100%. It's an open invitation. Whenever you want to come back, we always love talking with Jeff and and anybody at ATI. It's a great, great business. And Jeff, you're inspirational and very educational. Every time I talk to you, I, it, I truly appreciate you coming on the show and, and uh, look forward to the next time. Well, as I said, I love helping people and anything I can do to help yours. Absolutely, 100%. I'll be happy to come back some other time in the future. All right, Jeff. How do, how do people get in touch with you or learn more about ATI? Well, if you want to learn more about ATI, autotraining.net is the website. And if you have any questions about anything you heard today or any more information you'd like to know directly, you can email me at G-B-E-R-M-A-N at autotraining.net. All right. Thank you, Jeff. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jay.